from KPFK Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is Rising Up with Sonali and I'm your host Sonali Kolhatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com. In today's news headlines, President Donald Trump is meeting with senators from his own party on Tuesday to present a proposal for economic relief after the stock market fell. The rapid spread of the coronavirus COVID-19 through the nation has caused market jitters and appears to have put the president off balance. Trump's plan includes proposing payroll tax relief for Americans and a bailout of the travel industry. According to the Washington Post, quote, his proposal caught many lawmakers by surprise. The stock market rebounded on Tuesday after a massive fall on Monday and oil prices have also begun to recover. Meanwhile, Trump and his vice president Mike Pence gave a press conference on Monday in the White House briefing room about the spread of the coronavirus and the disembarking of a cruise ship in California. Mr. Trump stood silently next to Pence for a time and then walked out as reporters asked him about being tested for the virus, leaving the vice president to respond. Uh, thank you, Mr. President. Has he been tested? Has he been tested? Uh, have you been tested? I have not been tested for the coronavirus. Has the president, um, I, has the president been tested? He's been, in, he's been in contact with people who were in proximity to somebody who had the virus. Let me uh, be sure and get you an answer to that. I honestly don't know the answer to the question. Uh, That's Mike Pence at a press briefing on Monday answering questions about whether he or Mr. Trump have been tested for COVID-19. Another reporter raised the fact that Trump has been in contact with several congressmen who personally interacted with an individual at the CPAC conference now known to have the virus. You just said that you have not been tested. You said you don't know if the president has been tested. But today we learned that the president has interacted with two lawmakers who have interacted with someone who is positive for coronavirus. So why not get tested? Well, uh, I, I just simply don't know what the White House physician has recommended to the president, but I promise you we'll get you that information. The two congressmen in question are Matt Gates and Doug Collins, who have now self-quarantined after interacting with an infected person and then the president. Also under self-imposed quarantine is Trump's new acting chief of staff, Mark Meadows, Congressman Paul Gosar and Senator Ted Cruz. A total of seven lawmakers have announced they may have been exposed. So far, none are reporting symptoms. In other news related to the virus, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issued a new set of guidelines aimed at older Americans, saying people over 60 should avoid travel and stock up on supplies. A CDC spokesperson said, quote, as the trajectory of the outbreak continues, many people in the U.S. will at some point in this in time this year or next be exposed to this virus and there's a good chance many will become sick. The reason to stock up now is to kind of stick close to home. She added, quote, the highest risk is those who are older and with underlying health conditions. Colleges and universities across the country are canceling in-person classes, including at Harvard, Columbia, Princeton, Rice, Stanford, and UC Berkeley. In New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo has deployed the National Guard to New Rochelle, a town north of New York City, to contain the virus. Justifying his decision to reporters, Cuomo said, This is unique in the United States of America. We haven't seen this anywhere else. Think about it, New Rochelle has doubled the cases of New York City. And internationally, the quarantine in the hard-hit nation of Italy was expanded from a large part of the country to the entire nation. 
According to AP, Italy now has more coronavirus cases than anywhere but China, registering 9,172 infections with 463 deaths. Meanwhile, Iran had its single highest death toll in a day on Monday, with 54 people dying from COVID-19 in just 24 hours. In election news, five states are holding their primary races on Tuesday as Democratic presidential candidates Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders continued their battle for delegates heading into this summer's party convention. The state of Michigan is especially critical as it could portend a turnaround for Sanders' campaign if he's able to pull off a surprise victory in that state like he did four years ago against Hillary Clinton. Sanders enjoys strong support from American Muslims and Michigan has one of the highest concentrations of Muslims in the nation. Sanders also won an endorsement from musician Neil Young on Monday. Meanwhile, Biden, as the new frontrunner, is coming under closer scrutiny. Speaking to his supporters at a 2,000-strong rally in Detroit, Michigan, Biden faced protests among the crowds of people, with some holding up banners that read, NAFTA killed our jobs. Biden reportedly questioned whether they were pro-Trump supporters, before saying, that's okay, let him go. This is not a Trump rally. The Bernie bros are here. Let him go. Shortly after, more protesters demanded that Biden support a Green New Deal. Holding signs saying, Green New Deal now and green jobs for all, they chanted, Joe Biden's got to go. Biden, meanwhile, gave an interview to MSNBC's Lawrence O'Donnell, where he explained what sort of president he would be. Despite the fact that health care is the number one concern of voters in poll after poll and that Medicare for all is a popular plan, Biden promised to veto it if it were to come to his desk for a signature. I would veto anything that delays providing the security and the certainty of health care being available now. If they got that through and by some miracle, and there was an epiphany that occurred, and some miracle occurred that said, okay, it's passed, then you got to look at the cost. I want to know, how did they find the $35 trillion? Critics slammed Biden for regurgitating health insurance industry talking points. Lawrence O'Donnell also asked Biden about his enthusiastic support for the Iraq war, Biden claimed he did not believe the faulty intelligence that Iraq's Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. The, the rationale was that's the way to not go to war because I didn't believe he had those nuclear weapons. I didn't believe he had those weapons of mass destruction. And you may remember the debates we had after that period about when Colin said, anyway. So that was the rationale. Mm -hmm. what Biden has been accused of rewriting his history on the Iraq war. Florida is once more in the news over the police abuse of black school children. Taisha Harmon's seven-year-old son, who struggles with mental health issues, was handcuffed by school law enforcement so forcefully it left marks on the child's wrists. The incident took place in Pinellas County, where officials justified the boy's treatment, saying he, quote, was engaging in dangerous activity that could have hurt the student or others. That incident follows another one where a six-year-old black girl named Kaia Rowley was arrested at a school in Orlando. Video of the disturbing incident was made public last month. According to The Guardian, the Florida House passed a measure last week that would require police agencies adopt policies regulating the arrest of anyone under 10. It's now awaiting action by the state Senate.
And in international news, the U.S. military has announced it is withdrawing troops from Afghanistan just days after the signing of a peace deal with the Afghan Taliban. Although it's unclear if the deal is holding, given continued violence in the country, the troops are apparently drawing down. On Tuesday, a U.S. military spokesperson in Afghanistan said that the U.S. had launched its, quote, conditions-based reduction of forces to 8,600 over 135 days. And that does it for our news headlines today. We'll be back with the rest of the show after this break. Pacifica Radio. This is Rising Up with Sonali and I'm your host Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica Radio stations and affiliates nationwide. In an interview on MSNBC, Democratic Party frontrunner Joe Biden claimed that as president, he would veto a bill establishing Medicare for All if it were to pass Congress. Seemingly out of touch with voters who overwhelmingly demand a national health program and cite health care as a top election issue, Biden spouted the same objections to expanding Medicare as health insurance industry proponents have. Biden's tone deafness is particularly jarring in the face of the current coronavirus crisis, where the U.S.'s wholly inadequate health system is proving deadly. My guest is Dr. Philip Verhoff. He's a board member of Physicians for a National Health Program and an ICU physician based in Honolulu, Hawaii. Welcome to the program, Dr. Verhoff. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So first, before we get to what it was that Biden specifically said, um, how popular is this issue of is the issue of health care and how popular is Medicare for all as a solution to our health care problems. There have been many polls done, but for some reason, the corporate media still doesn't seem to clarify this issue. So let's clarify it. Well, and I think you raise an excellent point, right? The, you know, the polls, poll after poll, whether it's of physicians or of the public, um, continue to show broad support for Medicare for all as a solution. And you know, it's it's easy to spin those polls to say, well, uh, people didn't know what they were uh, responding to, or you know, uh, you know, only the Democrats seem to support it. But that's that's just really not true. There is uh, broad support, and and particularly notable for me as a physician is the fact that most physicians support this, and so the fact that uh, we continue to. Uh, hear a narrative that says, ah, this is not a workable solution, this isn't what America wants, well, it's simply a false narrative. And uh, and so we work very hard to 
to try and shed real light on this issue. So let's actually take a listen to what it was that Biden said in an interview with Lawrence O'Donnell of MSNBC. This was an interview on, on Monday. And this uh, will start with the actual question by the interviewer uh, that he posed to Biden. Uh, let's assume, uh, and I've asked other candidates this kind of question, veto question. Let's flash forward. Your president, Bernie Sanders, is still active in the Senate. He manages to get Medicare for all through the Senate in some compromised version, the Elizabeth Warren version or, or other version. Nancy Pelosi gets a version of it through the House of Representatives. It comes to your desk. Do you veto it? I would veto anything that delays providing the security and the certainty of health care being available now. If they got that through and by some miracle, and there was an epiphany that occurred, and some miracle occurred that said, okay, it's passed, then you got to look at the cost. I want to know, how did they find the $35 trillion? What is that doing? Is it going to significantly raise taxes on the middle class, which it will? What's going to happen? Uh, look, my opposition isn't to the principle that there should be, you should have Medicare. I mean, I, everybody, health care should be a right in America. My opposition relates to whether or not, A, it's doable, to what the cost is, and what the consequences for the rest of the budget are. How are you going to find $35 trillion? over the next 10 years without having profound impacts on everything from taxes for middle class and working class people as well as as well as the impact on the rest of the budget and that is Joe Biden speaking to MSNBC's Lawrence O'Donnell on Monday, where he was asked about Medicare for all. Uh, Dr. Verhoff, this was such an interesting answer from Biden because he did uh, feel compelled to say that he wasn't opposed to the principle of expanding Medicare. In fact, healthcare should be a right. But then he repeated this issue of how are you going to find $35 trillion? How is the budget going to manage it? How will it raise uh, taxes on the middle class, et cetera? How do you respond to this? It's a shame. And I think you're right. He's totally out of touch. But the thing that, that I think was most striking for me is that he said that he would veto any bill that doesn't assure health care for everyone. And quite frankly, his bill any any of his health care proposals, none of them assure health care for everyone. You know, he's he's running on a public option, on shoring up the ACA. But we have to remember that leaves 30 million people uninsured in this country. And so, OK, maybe we get 10, 10 million more people with insurance at, at, at its best moment. The ACA still literally left tens of millions of people uninsured which you know to you know in effect means that that they have no access to health care so you know to me it's like biden saying well i would veto my own health care bill if it came across my desk and so you know it's the most ridiculous argument but then you bring up the 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 funding issue and and you know he says where are we going to find 35 trillion dollars well look there have been study after study the most recent one uh from yale about a month ago that says we'll actually save almost $500 billion a year by moving to Medicare for all. So in fact, the money is there. Um, he also you know, glosses over the fact that that's $35 trillion over 10 years. We're already spending 
uh, upwards of three trillion dollars a year now. So it's not a question of you know where that money is going to come from. That money is already being spent. Um, it's simply a matter of taking it out of the hands of of the profiteering private insurance industry and actually using it to uh, to cover health care for everyone. What was remarkable was the way in which the interviewer cast the question was still not enough for Biden. The interviewer said if this bill were to pass the Senate with, you know, a strong proponent like Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, if Pelosi in the House as House Speaker would push it through, meaning if Congress, the entire U.S. Congress passed this by a majority and it arrived at your desk, meaning the only things stopping it from coming in, becoming law would be your signature would you veto it and he said he would he which to me was remarkable so he is basically running on a platform opposed to medicare for all yeah and that's a platform opposed to what the majority of the of americans polled want um you know he talks about wanting to unite but honestly, this is completely divisive. He's effectively saying healthcare, which for many people who support uh, Bernie Sanders is their most important issue. He's saying, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and veto uh, any bill that uh, that comes across my desk that looks like this. And and in that's fact, a isn't the issue of, of he- the party isn't the issue of healthcare important to a majority of American voters? I've seen polls that show that when asked what their most important issue to them in the election is, healthcare continues to be number one. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy and. You know, and honestly, a Medicare for all approach is really uh, the only way to to solve the problems that the that the country currently has with this. And and so um, he's you know he's coming out against that. And and honestly, that that really is it's striking too because it's saying he's not willing to work with the Congress because honestly, that's the way our government was designed, right? Where you need sort of uh, an executive and a legislative branch to work together. And so he's saying even if the legislative branch can go through the entire process and bring me a bill that looks good, I'm still going to veto it. That sounds vaguely familiar, right? That sounds like the current president we have who has also said, uh, you know, he's not basically going to work with or respect uh, the legislative branch of office. And, and, I, and I think that's really concerning. Yeah, I mean, it's quite remarkable because presumably any bill that was passed by Congress would have in it the plan for how to pay for it. It wouldn't just tell, you know, say that uh, tomorrow we shall expand Medicare for all and the money will magically materialize. Presumably any bill would have all of those details in it, but Biden would still oppose it. This shouldn't surprise us given that the day after Super Tuesday, health insurance stocks went up quite a bit. Yeah. Frightening, right? I mean, health insurance stocks were at an all-time high after the ACA was passed, and the individual mandate uh, became, an, uh, you know, in effect because it basically said you're going to be required to buy private health insurance. And so, you know, private health insurance, uh, private health insurance companies are looking at this as a windfall, right? It means they no longer have to deal, at least for the time being, of the threat that uh, that there's going to be an end to their profiteering madness. Um, but, you know, that's that's 
uh, that's to be expected, to be honest with you. And um, and I think it's really concerning. So Biden's sentiments, essentially, as you suggested earlier, echo those of Mr. Trump, who has said that Medicare for all would, quote, bankrupt the nation. And of course, the Republicans just go one step further in saying that it's socialism um, destroying American health care. Somehow it's not socialism if Medicare is restricted to people over the age of 65. But for the rest of us, when we expanded, then it suddenly becomes socialism. Right. Well, and of course, we heard 50 years ago when Medicare was enacted, uh, the, 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 the argument against it made by the American Medical Association was, you know, this will result in, in our country becoming a socialist country. That obviously hasn't happened. Now, what obviously did happen was that the health of our senior citizens improved dramatically. Um, the costs of their health care were suddenly controlled and uh, seniors no longer had to worry, uh, at least to the same extent, that as they aged, they, they would uh, face the danger of medical bankruptcy. Uh, but that being said, Medicare itself is not perfect, but, um, but it absolutely uh, provides a, a great degree of protection for our senior citizens. And, and, and so, you know, honestly, it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, a, it's a ridiculous talking point that's meant to stoke fear and, and isn't really based in any kind of reality. Um, it just doesn't make sense that this is a system that's okay for our seniors and not for anyone else. Oh, and not to mention the fact that it's okay for uh, many other countries around the world who are, are hardly argued to be socialist um, that, that use a, a system similar to this with a national health insurance program uh, administered by the government. Dr. Philip uh, Verhoff, the uh, backers of Biden within the Democratic Party are saying that Biden um, is best poised to beat Trump and that, yes, we all want things like Medicare for all, but we'll just have to wait another four years. The president of your organization, Physicians for a National Health Program, Adam, Dr. Adam Gaffney, recently wrote a piece in healthaffairs.org entitled Medicare for All, If Not Now, When? Can you lay out his arguments? given that every day, every week, every year that passes without uh, health insurance or rather health access, health care access for everyone just basically results in more and more deaths and that our country cannot take much more, if not now, then when? Um, what does he suggest needs to happen? I mean, you know, it, you've nailed it, right? We know that that literally thousands of people die per year for lack of health insurance. And to be honest, this is not a new fight. Um, PNHP has been, our, our organization, Physicians for a National Health Program, has been fighting for uh, this kind of health reform for more than 30 years. Um, and we're excited because this is the closest that we've come. It's actually in the national dialogue now. We're actually being, being able to talk about uh, moving towards Medicare for all uh, as a viable platform. There are bills that have been signed on to. We've got lots of legislators uh, who support this. And so, you know, the idea that we need to wait four more years seems incredibly irresponsible when we know that lack of health insurance leads to deaths, when we know that lack of health insurance contributes to health disparities, when we know that the cost of insuring workers is a burden that companies are, are starting to move away from. You know, people are starting to shunt their employees onto the healthcare exchanges rather than to offer them health insurance. And, and honestly, 
you know, companies didn't don't, didn't go into business to become health insurers, right? And and so the idea that we continue to burden the employers of this country with needing to provide health insurance is crazy. And so what we know is we will continue to flush money down the toilet into the the hands of the private insurance industry, which doesn't actually provide us anything, right? A, a health insurer makes money by denying claims, by making it difficult to uh, to actually uh, have patients receive the care that their physicians need. And so, you know, by moving these motives out, we, we begin to save lives. We begin to tackle health disparities in this country. We begin to tackle the drivers of uh, of, of the social determinants of health, we tackle poverty, and and nobody's saying that this is going to be the absolute solution. But the idea that we would actually continue to delay means that we will continue to hurt Americans, and that that for me as a physician, for all of us, is really unconscionable. It's just unconscionable that that a solution may exist. And we're simply unwilling to work for that solution. And one would think, given the current deadly coronavirus um, spread throughout the country, that the politicians of our parties would be more considering uh, or, or would more like be more likely to consider a system that actually covers most Americans. On Tuesday, President Trump and his vice president, Mike Pence, met with health insurance industry executives to yeah. demand that they weigh, well, it's uh, the way the news is being cast is that the executives have agreed to waive co-pays and extend treatment to make sure people who are infected with coronavirus get adequate care. So the president and vice president of our country have to basically ask health insurance industry executives for some concessions on this one issue, you're out of luck if you have like diabetes or cancer. <laughs> right, right, and and that's what's so crazy. You know, they're calling for uh, for this stuff to be covered. You know, I mean, these are death really panels to, right to, here, to, right? Really this is a death panel, that, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, it'd be easy if 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 we simply had a national health insurance system. And honestly, we now have to take health insurance companies, uh, you know, at face value. That that and and. And there's no reason to trust them, right? It doesn't make sense to me. If you have a private insurance plan with a high deductible, that say you have a $10,000 deductible, you become critically ill, you rack up $100,000 of hospital debt, and the private insurance company is going to pay for all that, you can bet that they are going to find ways not to, right? Because they have a vested interest in not paying for coverage. So, you know, they can they can come out and say, oh, sure, we'll cover everything. Um, but, you know, why would they do that for this disease and for not anything else? You know, it's it's again, it's it's the notion that people are responsible for the reasons that they get sick, that they get cancer, that they get coronavirus, and therefore they should have to pay for some of it themselves. This is just a crazy notion, right? We can't control that. And to the extent that people should reduce uh, their contact with others, should wash their hands, should um, not come to work when they're sick. These are all great messages, but the idea that you'll still get sick and may have to pay for the hospital bills that could rack up thousands of dollars is insane. And let's let's think about you know who are the populations 
that are most likely to get hurt by coronavirus, those those are the people that don't have access to care. People that are uh, living in poor neighborhoods or our homeless populations, you know, that's a group of people that has really close contact with, with other people in not necessarily very clean conditions. Those are the people that are gonna get sick and going to die from this. And, you know, they certainly don't have insurance. So, you know, it's great that the private insurers are saying, okay, we'll waive the cost. What do we do for the people that don't have insurance? Um, you know, if we had a national health insurance system, we would actually cover all of the costs of that health care instead of uh, basically putting a tremendous burden on our system in this time of crisis. Now, um, Bernie Sanders, uh, just a few days ago, made an appearance at a Fox News town hall where he raised some of his central policy issues, such as raising the minimum wage, um, which, by the way, would also be good for public health um, and um, dealing with climate change also would be good for public health. And of course, most importantly, the issue of Medicare for all. He specifically said that um, I live 50 miles away from the Canadian border. This is not a communist society up there in Montreal. They guarantee health care to all. They spend 50 percent of what we spend. Is passing Medicare for all single payer system a radical idea? He was met with huge applause laws from a Fox News town hall audience, which really suggests that neither Biden nor Trump are in touch with either of their constituencies, right? Totally, totally. I mean, the people understand, right? You know, no matter where you fall on the political spectrum, it seems, because you still have yeah. to deal with health insurance companies or if you're lucky, that is, and not have anything if you're unlucky. Yeah, no, and, and and so often that's the point where people's perspective on this really changes. They say, oh gosh, I, I wanna keep my health insurance, but you know, what happens when you need it and you realize all the holes that are in your health insurance? Or what happens when your employer decides not to offer that insurance anymore? Or what do you do about staying in a job that you hate or a job that uh, isn't good for you or for your family because of the health insurance? You know, all of these things are components of our current system and the public recognizes that. People see that this system is absolutely crazy. Um, you know, so many people tell us, gosh, I was so glad when I got Medicare because then I had a stable insurance system. So many doctors say, gosh, I'd much rather deal with Medicare than private insurance because I actually know what they cover and what they don't. And they're not trying to bait and switch. They're not trying to say they'll cover something and then they don't cover it. They're not changing the rules constantly. You know, it's, it's, it's remarkable to me uh, how effective the private health insurance industry has been at, at propping up its own existence with, uh, of course, they have all of the revenue that they get from our premiums, which is, of course, uh, effectively a tax on, on all Americans. And so, um, you know, that money basically buys uh, congressional blindness uh, to uh, to what their constituents actually want. If Biden ends up the nominee and if he wins the presidency in the fall, do you hope that the movement that has grown up around, that has coalesced, I should say, around the Sanders campaign, um, pushes a Biden presidency in such a way that he 
has his hand forced. Um, we certainly, even though on the issue of Medicare for all, Trump and Biden are closer to one another, there is a much bigger opening for change under any kind of a Democratic president, at least past few presidents have shown us, than under Republican presidents. Um, and I suppose the hope is that this movement pushes really hard for whoever occupies the White House to make Medicare for all a reality? Oh, absolutely. We will. We, we've already doubled down our efforts. And, and, and let me give you an example of that. Right now, the second largest physicians organization in the country, the American College of Physicians, which has 120,000 members, has come out in favor of Medicare for all single payer as a viable solution. This is momentous. And what this means is suddenly one of the absolute largest physician groups is going to work to fight for Medicare for all. And and that's because of the work that we've been doing for the last 30 years to, to help educate physicians, to help educate the public that this is a good idea. And, you know, the fact is our current system is is self-destructing. And so, uh, you know, it's it's to be expected that, that one of the big physician groups would finally get on board, but it really is exciting. We now have so many more allies in this fight, including dozens and dozens of uh, of grassroots organizations. We have physicians organizations. We have National Nurses United. We have a broad coalition of support for this. And so we're absolutely going to keep fighting. I've, I've been to Capitol Hill to, to lobby with the American College of Physicians, and now I get to lobby with them and talk about single-payer health care as the solution. I, I, I couldn't be more pleased. And so, you know, whether or not, uh, you know, uh, Biden wins, we're going to keep this effort up. And honestly, we'll keep it up if Biden is defeated or Sanders is defeated and Trump remains president. We will continue to fight for this because it's really the only solution for our country. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Philip Verhoff. It's been my pleasure and uh, call me anytime. <laughs> my guest, Dr. Verhoff, is a board member of Physicians for National Health Program, also an ICU physician based in Honolulu, Hawaii. We've been discussing Joe Biden, Medicare for All, and more. I'm Sonali Kohatka. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com, where you can sign up for our daily newsletter, find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify. Pacifica Radio. This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica Radio stations and affiliates nationwide. Newsweek magazine recently published a cover story by Sam Hill entitled, OK Millennial, Boomers are the greatest generation in history. In it, he claimed, quote, Millennials seem to think their challenges are greater than those any other generation has faced, not really. Hill wrote, the Great Recession? Nothing compared with the Great Depression. The wealth gap? 
Today, it's actually pretty close to historical averages. Student loans, student loan debt is $1.6 trillion. Over the next 30 years, boomers will pass down $68 trillion as part of the great wealth transfer that should cover it for many borrowers. The article's snide tone dismisses the concerns of American youth who are speaking out about the injustices they face in a world that has increasingly abandoned them to falling wages and economic insecurity, gun violence, climate change, and so much more. Now a new book lays out in great detail just how deep the crisis facing American youth is. Its author is Anne Kim, Director of Domestic and Social Policy at the Progressive Policy Institute in Washington, D.C. She's also a contributing editor to Washington Monthly, and she joins me to discuss her new book entitled Abandoned, America's Lost Youth and the Crisis of Disconnection. Welcome to the program, Anne. Thank you, Sonali, for having me. So first, um, how do you respond to this claim that the challenges facing American youth today are no worse than what, say, baby boomers faced? Wow, that's my first reaction to <laughs> Sam Hill's article here. Um, so the foundational premise of my book is that there are 4.5 million, 4.5 million young people between the ages of 16 and 24 who are not in school, not working. That's 11 and a half percent of all young people. And this is happening in, in what was until very recently the best economy, according to our president, that we have in decades. How it is that so many young people can be disconnected from mainstream economic opportunity? I don't know how the News Recover article can say that millennials have it good or that young people have it good because they clearly do not. In fact, we're facing the silent crisis where we have just huge numbers of young people who have fallen off the national conversation, off the radar screen about you know, our national conversation on inequality, opportunity, and who is getting ahead and who is not. Uh, I think that article is really missing the boat. So the uh, politi political class in general seems to be missing the boat, given that we are constantly being told that the economy, well, at least pre-coronavirus, was booming and that, uh, that unemployment was at an all-time low. That number that you mentioned of young people who are not in school or don't have jobs, um, that seems to not be counted when economic indicators such as the official unemployment rate or the number of jobs that are added every month get touted, right? Well, that's correct, Sonali. Um, the unemployment rate is, is a misleading number in some ways, in many ways, because it really only counts the number of people who are looking for work. If you are a young person who's essentially given up or is shut out of the labor market, you're not actually counted in that denominator for the unemployment rate. The more accurate number is to look at the employment to population ratio or the workforce participation rate. And when you look at those figures, you will see that young people have been falling out of the economy uh, for quite some time. And that is this disconnection that we are seeing. So this unemployment rate that's been touted really isn't an accurate picture of what is going on with the workforce, especially for youth. Tell me about what you looked at in um, basing your book on if these indicators are left out of our conversation. Where did you go to find the real stories, to find that real research that shows the crisis facing America's youth? Yes, so there is uh, there are a couple of nonprofits 
the one that's been doing some of the most you know, groundbreaking work on this for a while in terms of data is the Social Science Research Council's Measure of America project. And they have been tracking this connection in America for quite some time. Now, in the United Kingdom and in the OECD, um, the question of you know young people who are out of school and out of work has been measured for quite a while. In the UK, for instance, it's called NEETS, stands for Not in Employment, Education and Training. And since at least 1999, the British government has been keeping track of this figure and releasing quarterly numbers on just how many young people are out of school and out of work. We haven't been doing that. You can't go to the Census Bureau's website and find that out, which is why we have to rely on nonprofits who are finding this data on their own. Um, so the Social Science Research Council's Measure of America project, Brookings Institution has done some work as well. But I think one of the things we really need to do is begin to really measure this problem. That's why uh, our nation hasn't paid attention to this crisis in youth, because we're not even counting young people in our consideration. So what are some of the ways in which that disconnection is happening? What is the crisis? What do you mean by the crisis of disconnection? So, you know, one of the, um, I think, underlying premises behind the Sam Hills article, you know, he sees, he probably does see a lot of millennials and younger people who are doing well, but that is disguising what I think is a divergence in the experiences of young people. There's enormous amount of inequality that's going on. Um, young people who have, you know, education, the education to go to the places where you can get a good job. Um, it does, the runway to adulthood is taking a lot longer than it used to. And if you have the ability to rely on your parents for a longer period, you might do well. But public policy is failing a very large percentage of young people. Take for instance, young people who are in the foster care system. The outcomes are horrific there. The enormous young pe numbers of young people who are in the criminal justice system, we are failing those young people there. And then increasingly, we are seeing regional divergence. Rural young people are falling behind their urban counterparts. That's one of the surprises of disconnection. Um, one in five rural youth is not in school, not in working. It's a much higher percentage than in cities where there might actually be a little bit more physical proximity to educational opportunities or to jobs. One of the places that I profile in the book is uh, southwestern Pennsylvania. And there, the disconnection rate is close to 75%, three out of four young people who are not in school, not working. So there are rural um, youth, in, there are indicators about this disconnection in rural America and also in urban America, right? That's correct. There are what I call opportunity deserts mm -hmm. in both places. So on the one hand, you have these areas in rural Pennsylvania I talked about. And then the other, I have a chapter on a neighborhood in Baltimore, Maryland. Now, by all accounts, Baltimore is doing great. You have Under Armour there. You have an Amazon facility that's opened up. But if you go to a neighborhood there called Sandtown, what you'll find are rows upon rows of boarded up townhouses. Uh, the high school there is what's still considered a dropout factory with um, fewer than 60% of the students graduating at any given time. Bus service is unreliable. Um, the young people I talk to there have to commute for hours, literally, to look for a job, let alone get to one. There, the opportunities are very few. Parents don't have connections to get young people into internships or jobs that pay. 
that is an urban opportunity desert and is just as limiting as a rural one. It seems to me that the story about how celebrity and wealthy Americans buying their way, uh, their kids' way into colleges, uh, that was in the news, um, you know, several months ago, uh, that actually ended up landing some people in prison. That that too is part of this story. That more and more, those young people who are making it are the exception rather than the rule, and they're making it because their parents are gaming the system because they can, because they are able to, which is also part of the greater story of wealth inequality, right? Yes. I mean, that's a great example of the divergence I was talking about earlier in the young adult experience. I mean, we see inequality now on a much broader scale, uh, but even within young people, you know, if you are a young person who is growing up in the right place with the right parents, with the right connections, um, and you're probably going to do fine. And it's because that reliance on connections has become actually a lot more important these days. There's a myth that in America, you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, that if you work hard enough, long enough, um, you will get ahead. And I think that's increasingly untrue because the structural obstacles that are getting in the way of young people have really become gotten to the point where it's really impossible, no matter how hard you work, no matter how smart you are, no matter how dedicated you become, these structural obstacles stand in the way of your success. And that's what public policy needs to do, is recognize that these structural, geographical, cultural obstacles, educational obstacles exist and pull them away one by one so everyone can get ahead again if they want. I wonder if one of the things that stands in the way of this issue becoming more visible is our media's fixation on individual heroic stories, right? We'll hear about a kid who, against all odds, managed to get straight A's and get into college, you know, the five Ivy League schools on full scholarship. Um, and, and those kinds of stories seem to suggest that if kids just work hard enough, they too can be like this exceptional young person. Yes, I mean, that's one of the myths that I tackle in the book as well. Um, I think there is this misperception that if a young person is disconnected, it's because of, quote unquote, poor life choices or, quote unquote, personal responsibility. And I think there is this stereotype about the disconnected young person being the 20 year old guy who is just hanging out in their parents' basement. Um, that's not what's going on here. As I said, you know, there are structural obstacles that are standing in the way of young people's success. And I spoke to so many young people in the course of researching this book who really had big aspirations for themselves. You know, they were trying to go to school, they were trying to get jobs, they were really trying to make it, but life was standing in the way. Does the rise of the gig economy play a big role in this disconnection? Because when you measure job growth or how many jobs have been added to the economy, you don't see the quality of those jobs, the kind of job security that's available. And it seems to, um, I imagine that it would seem to American youth that for politicians, as long as they're, you know, driving a ride for a rideshare company, that, that means they have a job, but there's no necessarily job security, um, paid sick leave, or, you know, uh, it, it, it just seems to me that the gig economy 
is um, more and more something that corporate America is relying on. And as young workers graduate school, if they even ha- are lucky enough to do so, that this is the kind of job that's available to them now. I think that's right. I mean, there's been a lot of emphasis, as you point out, on the growth in jobs. And sure, the number of jobs might be great, but the quality of those jobs, as you point out, is subpar. You know, there have been surveys of young workers, and large majorities of young workers believe that they are in jobs that are, you know, that they're underemployed. You know, that they're not using the education that they do have. It's harder for young people to break into Um, industry these days to get that foothold into the labor market. Uh, Employers have cut down on the amount of training that they do. There are fewer apprenticeship programs, work experience programs, and there should be. It's a lot easier for an employer to find somebody, an older worker who may have some experience, rather than to take a chance on investing in a younger person. And that's something else that needs to change with the private sector as well. Uh, We need to move away from the temporary workers, gig workers, throwaway workers, and really begin to invest again in workers and in young workers in particular. What is the racial um, disparity within American youth? I imagine that just as in so many other social indicators, people of color tend to fare worse than their white peers. That's absolutely right. Now, Measure America finds that if you are a person of color, Um, you are about twice as likely to be a disconnected young person um, than someone who is not. Interestingly, the gender balance is about equal. Um, Among women, if you're young women, if you are disconnected, it's likely because you're a young mom. If you are a young man who is not in work and not in school, it is likely because you have been justice involved in some way. And of course, you know, the racial disparities in the criminal justice system have been documented and those are really tragic consequences we see there as well. Right, and and this is not a new issue. We've been um, having this conversation thanks largely to the work of grassroots activists who've been working to reform the criminal justice system that um, it starts in school, that youth of color, that kids of color start being disciplined at disproportionate rates. Um, In schools, we hear stories of police arresting even little kids under the age of 10 who are black for acting out. Um, and all of that, of course, sets a kid up um, very early in, the, in life to be repeatedly criminalized, right? No, that, that, that's right. Uh, and a young person who is not in school is not going to be set up for success. You know, as you point out, uh, young people of color are disproportionately singled out disproportionately expelled, disproportionately suspended, and then disproportionately in detention. You know, incarceration is probably one of the most catastrophic outcomes that can happen for a young person. Not only are these young people deprived of any opportunities to further their education or to get any valuable job skills. I I saw there a number I cite in my book is that fewer than 10% of any detention facility have any sort of educational or training opportunities available to those who are incarcerated. Young people are also more likely to be sexually assaulted while they are uh, in detention. And most tragically, 70 to 80% of them are likely to reoffend within two to three years. There's no clearer way, shorter way to short circuiting someone's chances for success 
than to have them involved in the criminal justice system and incarcerated. And it's absolute sabotage of a young person's odds of success. Let's focus on what needs to be done first before we get to the structural um, policy recommendations that you might make of government. What are the young people that you've talked to say they need first and foremost to deal with this crisis they're facing? Caring adults. Hmm. Absolutely caring adults. I mean, when you think back to who made a difference in your life as a young adult, when I think back to who made a difference in my life, it's that mentor, it's that teacher, it's that coach, you know, it's that parent. And for many young people who are disconnected, that missing element is the lack of mentorship in some way, the lack of support and the lack of bridge to opportunities. And there are a number of, you know, nonprofit organizations that are trying valiantly and succeeding in providing the kinds of connections and support that young people need. And those organizations need a lot more funding, a lot more support, and to be lifted up as examples of what all of us can do to end this crisis. And then what are the systemic issues that need to be addressed? I imagine that some of the broad policy prescriptions that are promoted by uh, progressive uh, you know, folks and, and organizations such as Medicare for All, raising the federal minimum wage, et cetera, would go a long way toward addressing this crisis. It's no surprise that, uh, say, a presidential candidate like Bernie Sanders is hugely popular among American youth. Mm -hmm. You know, yes, but the caveat there is that, you know, the minimum wage, things like that are helpful for those who are already connected to the workforce in some way. When we're talking about those who have no connection, there are even deeper structural challenges that need to be addressed, and that is reforming the child welfare system. Uh, I alluded to this earlier, but, you know, the young people who age out of the foster care system, there are about 20,000 of them. A third of them are going to end up homeless. A third of them are going to end up incarcerated. Fewer than half will have a job by the age of 26. The child welfare system, a system that is supposed to be protecting the welfare of these kids is doing the exact opposite of that. So fixing that system is paramount. Fixing the criminal justice system is paramount. Diverting more young people, especially nonviolent young people, young offenders away from incarceration. Third the educational system so that young people who are graduating from high school actually have skills that they can use in the workforce. And then for fixing this problem of geographic inequality where people, young people who are marooned in places where the factories have gone away or where the jobs are gone can still find some way of success where, where they live. I think what's happening with young people is a symptom of these broader trends and inequality that are kind of ripping the country apart and they're a harbinger of worse things to come. And yes, I agree with you. We need universal health care. We need to have better quality jobs, but we need to lift up those who are falling to the very bottom of the economic ladder because they have no access at all right. to that first step on the ladder. The the danger of having a growing group of disconnected youth is is what exactly? I mean, we see in history, we see in other parts of the world that when there are large numbers of young people who feel disconnected, that the 
political um, direction of the country can get really dark really fast. Yes, that's right. Youth unemployment is actually a global problem. And it's no coincidence that when you have high rates of youth unemployment, you will see uh, political unrest and you do see that in other parts of the world. The other problem is that young people who are disconnected will grow up to be older people who are disconnected. And that is a deeply costly problem for society. Uh, there's a Columbia University study that was done in 2015 that calculated that the total social burden, including direct costs of someone who remains disconnected, will add up to about $700,000 over their lifetime. That's direct costs for welfare, perhaps if they become homeless, for incarceration, for medical care, things like that. But also that lost economic gain from having someone who is not working, we're not collecting taxes from them. This person could be an innovator, could be an entrepreneur, and we're losing out on all that economic opportunity. We will lose as a country ultimately if we don't engage the you know, one in nine who are currently not part of the economic mainstream. And, and I, I don't know, I've, I, it always rubs me the wrong way to think about youth, uh, uh, think about people as economic opportunities and, and innovators. They're, they're real people in the end, right? I mean, they're also, they need to have their own futures. They need to have the opportunity to have lives and choose their paths, whether or not they're going to contribute to the economy. Just even having happiness and contributing to their own lives is so, so important. Um, I know you didn't mean that, but it just that language of the corporatist rubs me the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, as a, as a whole person, you know, and the, the young people I talk to very much want to be contributing. You know, they all had big dreams for themselves sure. in some way. You know, they wanted jobs that were going to get them financial independence, but also to contribute to their communities. Well, Anne, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Good luck with your book. Thank you so much for having me, Sonali. My guest has been Anne Kim. She's Director of Domestic and Social Policy at the Progressive Policy Institute in Washington, D.C. and a contributing editor to Washington Monthly. We've been discussing her new book, Abandoned, America's Lost Youth and the Crisis of Disconnection. I'm Sonali Kolhatka. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com where you can sign up for our daily newsletter. Also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RUWithSonali. Rising Up with Sonali is hosted, written, and executive produced by Sonali Kohatka. Anna Bus is the producer, technical director, and web and social media supervisor. Our theme music is by Grammy Award-winning band, Gets Up. Like us on Facebook.com slash RU with Sonali. That's the letters RU with Sonali. And follow us on Twitter.com slash RU with Sonali. Our website is risingupwithsonali.com, where you can find all our programs archived and where you can get direct access to all our video and audio files. KPFA has gone social. Media, that is. Stay connected to all things KPFA by visiting our Facebook and Twitter pages, where you'll be able to get special access to additional news and information from all of your favorite KPFA news and music programs. And make sure to check out KPFA's YouTube channel for never-seen-before musical performances and past KPFA author events. KPFA knows this is your station, and we want you to feel connected to us at all times so we can all continue to stay vigilant as always. 
Hi, I'm Allie Budner, reporter for the Mountain West News Bureau at KRCC Radio in Colorado Springs. I'm also a graduate of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program at KPFA. The program is accepting applications. You can download an application at kpfaapprentice.org or call the station at 510-848-6767, extension 235. You're listening to KPFA 94.1, KPFB 89.3 in Berkeley, and KFCF 88.1 in Fresno. In Berkeley, this Bobby, 